Hey, everyone, I want to invite you to a writing event that is coming up, a somewhat unknown writing event. Um, you know, at NaNoWriMo, we're so well known for National Novel Writing Month that happens every uh, November that sometimes people don't know that we do writing events throughout the year. And one special event is Camp NaNoWriMo. We have sessions of it in April and July. And it's, it's just like NaNoWriMo, except it's a more casual version of NaNoWriMo. We believe that a, that a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife, and a goal and a deadline is at the heart of Camp NaNoWriMo, except you don't have to write 50,000 words of a novel. You can come on our site, and if you want to write 10,000 words in the month of April, uh, you can set a goal of 10,000 words. If you want to write a poem a day or a piece of flash fiction a day, you can do that for Camp NaNoWriMo. There's just many different ways you can participate, but the core of NaNoWriMo is there. You know, we provide inspiration and motivation and resources and most importantly, a community of writers to help galvanize you. So our next session of Camp NaNoWriMo is happening in April. So please sign up for it and enjoy writing whatever you want to write. Hello, writers, time excavators, truth tellers, world changers, researchers. I'm Grant Faulkner, Executive Director of National Novel Writing Month, and I'm here with my very curious co-host, Brooke Warner, founder and head of She Writes Pressed. And Brooke, I'm, I'm thinking about the nature of time and the understanding of time in novels, because when I encountered the title of Cheryl Head's new novel, Time's Undoing, I paused and I wondered what it meant. You know, it's a very curious phrase. How can you undo time? And then it brings up the phrase for me, doing time. So being in prison, being confined. And I think the title carries uh, several different meanings if you read the novel. And the subject of time, of course, is one of, one of the great themes of literature and, and our relationship to time and what has happened in the past or is hoped for in the future really determines what it is to be human. And that's why Cheryl's novel is so important because of the way it connects past racial injustice to the present, specifically through the main character, Megan McKenzie. And, and just to provide some context, in the novel, Megan, who is the youngest reporter at the Detroit Free Press, she's grown up hearing family stories about her great-grandfather's murder, but no one knows the full story of what really happened back then, and his body was never found. So she's determined to find answers to her family's tragedy, and then, and then she's especially motivated by the urgency of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, she travels to Birmingham, and she finds friends and allies that help her on her journey, but then as her investigation begins to uncover dark secrets, her life becomes endangered because her, her presence threatens the balance of power. And if there's one thing we know about power, it's that people with power want to keep it in a variety of unsavory ways, to put it mildly. So one thing that's key to this novel and the subject of time is how it shows the progress we've made, thank God, but also the progress we haven't made. Many things are still, unfortunately, the same as we know. And I kept thinking of Martin Luther King's famous quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And that quote always gives me hope, but at the same time, I'm frustrated by just how slowly the arc is bending. Um, sometimes the bend seems imperceptible, glacial even. Yeah, thanks for the unpacking of that story, because I really hope that our listeners will read this book. It's a compelling novel for all the reasons that you mentioned, and also because of how personal the story is. It's a novel, yes, but Cheryl's grandfather, Robert Harrington, was killed at the hands of Birmingham, Alabama police in 19... 29. So Cheryl's grandfather is a literal character in the novel. And her story is so interesting, because even though she says the subject came up 
often in her family and her mother carried the heartbreak of that event viscerally. Cheryl only knew snippets of the story through facts and anecdotes and speculation. And she's going to talk about this in the interview too. You know, people whispered it, um, you know, it was just not very uh, open, of course, and, and feared for their lives to say what was true. Uh, and so she says things she knew like he liked to dress nice and had a good job. He drew attention to himself because your grandmother could pass for white and things like that. But his actual story was lost with his life. And I'm just thinking about this in the context of historical fiction, because so often we see writers uncovering the lives of people that they want to shine a light on. And I love that about historical fiction, because I see so many in, in my case for She Writes Press, women writing about unsung heroes of the past, uh, especially women whose stories didn't get to be told. And in this case, Cheryl had this family story, a traumatic one, but it had gone unexplored for far too long. Uh, and as a writer, there was her subject matter. And then George Floyd got murdered and that was the catalyst. And she knew she had to tell her grandfather's story. And then to do that, she essentially changed into her main character, Megan, to research this murder and document what happened. And I just find everything about this so amazing and compelling. Yeah. Brooke, when you mentioned how Cheryl's grandfather's story was only alive through snippets, it made me think about how the story was also present in the way that trauma doesn't necessarily fade with memory. It takes on other forms with time and it's actually passed from one generation to the next. In fact, I it made me think that I, I think I, I've read that scientists have even shown that trauma literally becomes cellular and it can be passed down. So our body's cells can hold an imprint of past traumatic events. And, and that is so keenly shown in the dual timelines, which intertwine in this novel. But I also uh, should note that it's, it's not only a story of injustice and trauma, the novel also shows how there's a power and a healing to be found when communities come together in the fight for change. Yeah, and I feel that healing in the novel's words, and I'm fascinated to hear more from Cheryl today because her mother was a young girl when her father was killed, and then 92 years old at the time that Cheryl began this book. So she became part of the research and Cheryl interviewed her. And we're talking about oral histories today and the fact that that actually played a huge role in this story, because as you can imagine, the injustice of racism includes erasure. Uh, we're seeing that today in book bans and, uh, you know, other ways as well, the, the banning of teaching history, so crazy. Um, and so the family literally had no record of Robert's death until Cheryl found a newspaper report about his death and then presented it to her mother and said, your story is true. There's proof. And then this led to finding the death certificate. Again, it's just like really an amazing story. So it's like the real story is, is so amazing. And the novel as it mirrors the real story is so cool. Um, you know, and that the erasure of Robert's death uh, is, is unerased by his own granddaughter is, is just really part of the healing, right? It's literally able to hold proof of the story and, and to change and own the narrative. And so I really appreciate that Cheryl's main character is a reporter, because this is what novels sometimes have to do, especially novels like this. It's like unearth the story and then bring light. Yeah, the story might be fiction, but it's a story of deep truths. And I, I think when you mentioned healing, you know, you can hear that in our conversation with Cheryl is how writing the story, she says it began in rage, but it led her to other emotions. And I think that's really interesting. So we'll hear more from Cheryl uh, after this short break. Mm -hmm. 
Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Cheryl Head, who is a writer, television producer, and broadcast executive. She's also the author of the award-winning Charlie Mack Motown Mysteries, whose female private investigator protagonist is queer and black. Head is an Anthony Award nominee, a two-time Lambda Literary Award finalist, a three-time Next Generation Indie Book Award finalist, and winner of the Golden Crown Literary Society's Anne Bannon Popular Choice Award. And her books are included in the Detroit Public Library's African American Book List and in the Special Collections of the Library of Michigan. Cheryl lives in Washington, D.C. with her partner and with Abby and Frisbee, who provide canine supervision, which we all need. <laughs> Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You know, when I opened up the press packet for your book um, and opened up the reading club kit um, in particular, the first page of the reading club shows a family lineage from, from Robert the great-grandfather who was murdered to Megan, the main character. And it gives a short description for each character. And and I know that this is also a personal story for you as well, um, because your grandfather, Robert, was killed by police in Birmingham nearly 100 years ago. And, and you wrote, I wish there had been some police accountability when my grandfather was killed almost a century ago, an investigation that would shed light on the circumstances of his death. It would have given my family closure and maybe some peace. So I was wondering if you can talk more about your personal connection to this story and, and the lineage of a trauma like this. Yes, absolutely. I was really pleased that Dutton Books put together that that family tree, that they did that on their own initiative. I thought it was a wonderful graphic and kind of captures the the intricacies of, of this story. Um, yes, it's personal. Um, I've walked around with the story for decades but uh, was reluctant to write it because um, the stories about my grandfather's homicide in Birmingham, Alabama, were, were filled with gaps of information. Um, my mom was only two years old at the time. Um, in those days, uh, Black people didn't really talk aloud about criticizing law enforcement. Um, she often said that when she overheard the, the, the conversations of adults, it was in whispers and People were in furtive glances around to see who might be listening. So I've been able to piece together this story really through the memories of my mother and my grandmother and my aunt over the decades. And these, they're snatches of memories. They're an occasional letter, an, an occasional uh, photograph. Um, and it's really why I hadn't tackled the story before, because I didn't think I had enough detail to really do the story justice. Um but when George Floyd uh, was killed in March of 2020, I, I was so enraged, I guess is the best word, that I thought, you know, I'm not going to let these insecurities about lack of details hold me back. I'm, I'm going to write this story because I think it's important to make the point that these incidences of excessive force by law enforcement are systemic and have happened over decades and over centuries in America with the, with the purpose of helping to give context to what possibly could be solutions to better community policing. Well, and because it covers such a long period of time and generations, it's clearly a commentary on what changes and what stays the same. And you wrote about your own research. I poured over the archives of Black newspapers dating back to the 20th century and marveled at what has changed for Black people in America and what hasn't. Yes. So what was important to you in showing how the past speaks to the present and what these last 100 years says about what has changed and what hasn't? 
Great question. Uh, the mainstream newspapers and also the black newspapers of the time were just invaluable in helping me to do a lot of imagination about the 1929 times, the daily life of uh, black Americans in a really segregated um, environment, one in which Jim Crow laws really had the heft of life and death, ones in which in Birmingham in particular, there were black codes that really ruled the conduct of um, a black Americans, what they could or could not do on a daily basis. And so, and there was also kind of the, the, the thrill and the, the fun of looking through the ads that were in that newspaper. So, you know, I, I want to say in, in writing this story, it was very cathartic for me. I started off in anger, but very much ended in a, a kind of a sense of wanting to remember, but um, move forward to also make the point that communities can push for change um, and, and change can happen through collective action. And I also wanted to paint a picture of how important it is for Black Americans during Jim Crow to be able to have community that allowed them to have relationships and entertainment, uh, Black love and Black joy. I didn't want this book to just to be about death and about anger and about um, the conditions that prevailed in those times. Um, what I do think uh, this story will do, I hope it will do for readers, is to give them a curiosity about understanding more about Black American lives in this country through Civil War Reconstruction and Jim Crow, the period called Jim Crow, um, to see if they can see their own similarities in some of the actions that are happening now to kind of understand the context, perhaps, for some of the divisiveness that we see right now um, in this country, and to also see the resilience of communities and their ability to cause change. That's, if, if I had a stated goal, it would be that. Well, it's interesting to hear about your research, Cheryl, and, and your purpose of, of opening up curiosity, because when I was reading your book, I thought about how so much of our history isn't on the internet, which we sometimes think holds everything, but it doesn't. Yeah. And it's not even in books. And, and, and then now we're seeing the attempt to erase a lot of history through banning books and through, you know, and, and banning the teaching of racial injustices that are part of our history. And, and so much of, of Megan's investigation relies on oral histories, mm -hmm. um, starting with her grandmother's, you know, much repeated tale of her father's death to the stories shared by Cecile Clark, the motel owner, and Roberta Banton, the relative of the black newspaper publisher. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just curious, were you consciously uh, making a point about the importance of oral histories and their value in understanding our past? And also, I, I know that finding an actual newspaper report about your grandfather's death was a cathartic moment for you. So, so it made me think that the stories we tell also need a record. Oh, that's a great question. I've I've had arguments with historians about the value of oral history versus the stuff that resides in books, because over time, really, the, the victors get to write history. The, the people who win, the mainstream authorities get to write what goes into the textbooks. I grew up in Detroit and in the public school system. And I read very little about slavery that wasn't in the context of kind of understanding who Abraham Lincoln was. I mean, I don't even, I didn't even read about the Confederate heroes, which I would have, would not have mind doing. Um, the omissions of the stories of peoples of color, indigenous people, uh, ethnic uh, communities in our history books, I think is, is a real shame. I, I, I for one, want to know the full story of America 
every time I do research on on a book, I'm learning something new that's 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 a thrill to me. I thought I, for instance, knew a lot about Native American culture, and I don't. And I'm re, I'm writing a story that involves that right now, and I'm learning about it. I think it's a real disservice to the country for us to be talking about uh, omitting things, uh, omitting books from libraries and banning books. It, um, you know, how else will we understand really how far we've come without understanding where we began? Um, and how will we look for the potential to um, solve our collective problems, to be a better uh, country, to live up to the ideals of our constitution? If we can't give context to it and, and, and understanding the full story of, of America, I'm a, I'm a big Western fan. You know, I, it's like a guilty pleasure. I'm starting to whisper now uh, <laughs> because uh, I, you know, I know as I'm looking at Westerns, uh, you know, I watched them with my father on TV. I, I love kind of the, the, the tone of them, but I know there's racism and misogyny and, you know, uh, at the same time, uh, I want to be able to now learn more about what's what's behind those stories, even as I enjoy those stories at, at their face value. Um, I don't think it um, hurts us to know. I don't think it hurts our psyches to have some memory that is both individual and collective about uh, the history of this country. And I think there's some great books that are doing a great job of that now. I hope mine will be helpful in that process. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Um, and here, here, for sure, especially I have a, a young son, and I think about it all the time, you know, and I, I think it is helpful. It makes us all more powerful and uh, conscientious for it. Yes. And and I wanted to speak about this idea that we talk about on the show a lot, that stories have a force of their own to be seen and heard. And you have this great quote, uh, you wrote, no matter how much things change, secrets will bubble up through the ground. Uh, and that one of your jazz pals used to say, the earth holds all the dirt. <laughs> I love that so much. So yeah. can you talk about the force this story had for you? Because of course, you've been carrying it around in some ways all your life. So what was that shift from, you know, family story you carry in your heart and in your bones to a story that you, you begin to imagine as bigger to a story that is actually a published book? Mm-hmm. So that uh, that quote in the book, that that line from the book, you know, gave me a, a lot of pleasure to write. Um, and I've been in Birmingham lots of times, and I know Birmingham is a city that is a different kind of city in the in this century. Um, but I do think um, its involvement in um, in Jim Crow South, its involvement in the civil rights era of this country is not something that can be easily laid aside. Uh, I know uh, there's this notion of the new South and people are renaming towns and renaming sections of towns to do kind of a, to, to build them up as more tourist friendly. But I, when I visited uh, Birmingham last, you know, I really wanted to kind of soak up the environment of it. There's some swell people there, really sweet people. Uh, the young people are also nice relative to the ones here in D.C. Uh, but <laughs> but I do know that that city, like other cities in this country and like other countries in this world, have a lot to live up to. That, you know, decades and decades of segregation and bias and murder and social injustice can't be set aside and put on the back shelf after a few decades, you know, just through marketing. So I wanted to make that point. Um, 
the, the writing was cathartic. Grant, I don't know if I answered your question about finding that uh, newspaper article. I'm sitting there doing this research after hours and hours of looking at newspaper articles and uh, for it to pop up on my screen, uh, you know, it was just almost miraculous. You know, I sat there for half an hour just kind of looking at it and um, crying a little bit. And I didn't tell my partner and I didn't call my mother right away. I wanted to kind of just feel what I was feeling about it. Um, and there were a lot of feelings that bubbled up having proof that these oral histories, these tidbits of information had some proof and documentation. It was a, it was a kind of a spiritual process sometimes writing the story. I often felt, you know, my grandfather would give me a little nudge. I tried to put that in the book because um, I, I don't know how I found that article, you know, and I don't know how I was able then to go on and get the, the um, death certificate having that, article and the precise time of death allowed me to get for the first time my grandfather's death certificate. And I also felt when I was writing the 1929 sections, it felt very organic. The The 2019 uh, sections of the book was a, a lot harder. Um, so I, I hope I answered the question. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about you and your main characters, you know, uh, Charlie Mack Motown series, uh, you know, features a black female queer private investigator, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. and, and Megan is a reporter. So they're both seeking the truth, uh, perhaps through different but related lenses. And and I'm, I'm curious, will Megan now being an ongoing character for you, do you plan to write more historical novels and kind of unearth other stories? You know, I don't think so. I, I do think there may be a sequel to this story looking at Megan and her newfound community in Birmingham, because I've heard have some readers say they want some closure around that. They, they, they say, what happened with Megan and Darius? Did they get together? <laughs> that kind of thing. So I may write just a sequel to the book. I want some closure for Kristen, the young white librarian in the book, who was a real champion, a real courageous woman. And I think in our um, our focus on building racial alliances and and moving towards social justice, we need all people involved in the work. And I really would like to maybe explore how to give uh, um, Kristen some peace, because she kind of leaves not in a great way in, in, in the novel. You know, writing historical fiction, I've written one before. It, it's such a, I feel so much responsibility when I'm writing mm. historical fiction. And I, I sort of had vowed never to write one again. So the first historical fiction was about Negro soldiers in World War II. It's called Long Way Home. I self-published that, you know, nine years ago. I uh, had, I was working in public media, uh, Ken Burns had uh, released his really fine documentary called The War. But the sections I saw about black soldiers service in World War II didn't fit the narrative I'd heard from my father, who was a private first class in, in the army. And uh, I wondered about the stories of Negro soldiers. And in doing the research in that, really realized that 80% of Negro soldiers never went to the front line. They served with honor and I think with courage in segregated uh, army bases around this country. Um, some of them went overseas doing menial work, unloading cargo boats and digging graves. And there are one or two, of course, stories of the, the valor and glory of uh, battle around the Tuskegee Airmen and the, uh, the I think it's the 110th uh, service platoon in Italy. But 
that's not the the major story of um, Negro, called Negroes in those days, Black service in World War II. It was one that was a second class soldier's story. So um, in doing the research on that, I, you know, I'm here in D.C., which is a benefit. I spent hours and hours in the Library of Congress. Uh, I couldn't find another book written about the stateside service of Black Americans, but I found letters that were written by Black Americans. I found maps of um, bar- uh, barracks. I found photographs in the Library of Congress of Black folks in service during the time, and uh, I think I was able to write what I feel is a an empathetic and accurate uh, depiction of um, black the black lives of uh, soldiers, men and women, uh, during World War II. So I, I say all that to say, it's immense. I feel immense responsibility to get the story right. You know, to really, in the case of World War II, to plumb myself in what was happening in 1943, both in the world and stateside. And in the case of Times Undoing, to kind of really understand what was happening in the country and in the world in 1929. Goodness, thanks for that due diligence, Cheryl. It's so important. And this, I love this because it kind of comes full circle, you know, to now the ones who are writing the books are not necessarily the people who won history, right? And we have this mm-hmm. chance with historical fiction, I think, to take back the narrative, which I just love so much. Yes. Uh, and and this is our last question. And we just wanted to cite something that you tweeted, which was about the fact that this is a personal family tragedy, but you wrote, it also shows Black joy and Black love, which you mentioned at the outset of the interview. So thank you for that. Um, and you wrote, because that's what has kept us alive on this planet for so long. So could you speak more to that as we come to a close, just how joy centers you as a writer and is central to your stories? Yeah, I you know I think a lot about history for especially for African Americans and how a lot of our generations, mine included, you know, grew up without a, much knowledge about what it meant to be a, a black person in America, because our textbooks didn't speak to it, our television shows didn't speak to it, our newspapers and all the information we were getting really didn't address uh, black life in America. And, you know, until actually much more recently in the last, I'd say, 50 years, maybe. Um, And I think when you forget uh, where you come from, and I think when you forget the contributions you make to a country and the struggles and also the resilience and the resistance and the... um, uh, the, the the willpower to live your life and to not only survive, but to thrive is so important for, for people. Um, you know, I think there was a lot of shame for Black people in thinking about slavery and remembering slavery and, you know, and talking about it because it was a story of, of uh, defeat and um, poverty and ignorance and misery. And, you know, who really does want to walk around with that? Um, but there were never enough stories about uh, the folks who resisted, never enough stories about how families managed to um, live and thrive and love and build uh, other families and to escape slavery and to move to the north and to uh, build family there and to build neighborhoods and communities and to have their progeny go to college and become, you know, professors and teachers and plumbers and, you know, and ministers, not enough stories about that. And I know that uh, 
for instance, uh, my Jewish friends, I've, I've been to Israel and I, I, what I love about uh, the Jewish story is they talk about never forgetting. And I think that is so important that we do not forget what's happened to us uh, out of embarrassment or fear. We, we don't want these things to be repeated. We are very, very close to a, a point in our time where we're seeing the ubiquity of hate groups and the, uh, the uh, thriving of, of hate speech and hate talk. And it's, it's frightening. We do not want to forget that we've been in these situations before and to do the things necessary to, to quell those kinds of negative and hateful um, actions. We've got to nip it in the bud. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for helping us to never forget and, and to opening up curiosity, as you said. Thank you. This was a really helpful conversation to me. It was cathartic. It was like therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. We sometimes strive for that. Thank you, Cheryl. So grateful to have you on. Thank you both. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. So, Brooke, one thing we haven't ever dug into in the book trend is the proliferation of online classes that seemed to explode at the outset of the pandemic when we dramatically shifted to being online, especially in 2020. Uh, but it's continued, of course. And it's notable to me because because our lo- local bookstore, Book Passage, has done you know lit- online events literally every single day, and and they very effectively pivoted something that they you know normally do in the store, which is hosting events, uh, to hosting a book event online and doing it every single day. And that's just one bookstore and and Brooke you know I know you teach classes online and there are innumerable venues and outlets like Extended Session which you and I both have taught for and Writers Digest and places like the Kauai Writers Conference and and others have their own series I actually just returned from recording a class for Domestica in Madrid of all places and and Publishers Weekly has a class series and then there was Catapult a publisher who launched its own online series but last month they announced very suddenly that they're closing that part of the business to focus on their books and I'm curious since you teach online what do you make of that closure? Yeah, you know, 2020 was such a wild ride of a year, as we all know. And I was one of the people who experienced a giant windfall in my classes due to that pivot. And I had some really successful boot camps that year, you know, something like 300 plus students attending some of my classes. And of course, I saw everyone then jump into the pool, right, which is what happens when you have people ready to seize a moment. Uh, And then all of a sudden, you just have all of these online classes and opportunities, which is wonderful, of course, but then you're competing for the same students. And now three years later, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, online classes are going really strong. Um, Like my five things class that I taught last month was fabulous. And I had a lot of students show up. But I also think you have a natural downturn in the number of people wanting to do online classes and more venues offering them. And so that's what I am making of Catapult, right, which is just that it decided that as a company, they didn't want to put the time and resources into that part of the business anymore. It's certainly a ton of work. And if you don't get the students, then it's really not worth tending to that part of the business. Yeah, I was somewhat riveted by the Catapult news because several of my friends have taught with them and they they literally found out that they lost their jobs uh, via other people's tweets. Yeah, not cool. We wonder how that happens, you know. <laughs> but but as I read the news coverage, one thing I, I was surprised to learn is that Catapult was founded in 2015 by Elizabeth Koch, daughter of Charles Koch of Koch Industries. And our listeners might know who that is. 
And our friend Jane Friedman, who, who often seems to be tied uh, into our trends because of her fabulous hot sheet um, that everyone should subscribe to, she wrote about Anne Trubeck, who wrote a post about how literary publishing and book publishing is often tied up with billionaires. And I know I know that you read about that, Brooke, so I was wondering if you could say more about this odd connection we have uh, that Jane was making in her coverage of this story. She's basically saying that publishing has always been a place where billionaires have entered into the space. And so I do read Hot Sheet. And so I was like, who is Anne Trebek? What is she writing about? Um, and she was writing about, you know, this idea that billionaires and their trust fund kids have a lot of influence in this industry, but in all media industries. Because if you have money to throw around and you can absorb the losses, you can be really effective. And so when Elizabeth Koch founded Catapult in 2015, she got a lot of attention. Because I'm in book publishing, I was highly aware of this, right? Because they also acquired Counterpoint and Soft Skull Press, which are local Berkeley presses that I actually have personal connections to through various people that I know. Um, and so I, I found this whole thing, you know, at the time, like, okay, interesting. Elizabeth Koch is starting her own publishing company. And, and we're seeing the same kind of attention actually recently for Zibby Owens, who's another kid of a billionaire, Stephen A. Schwartzman. Uh, Zibby in a single year, in addition to the book publishing side of her business that just published its first book in February, has also launched online classes, <laughs> speaking of online classes, and opened a brick and mortar bookstore. And so I think what interests me about Catapult closing the side of its business is tied to what I've been watching with Zibby's massive growth trajectory, which is like, even for billionaire kids who get into this business and really take the bull by the reins, it's not easy to make it all work. Uh, and at some point for a lot of them, I think something's got to give. And now Catapult is owned by Forbes. And then last month, the New York Times actually did a huge personality piece on Elizabeth Koch uh, because she has a new venture called the Perception Box, which she wants to use to prompt a global movement of self-investigation. So the story goes on. Very interesting. Yeah. And I wanted to investigate all that a little bit further because, you know, Catapult had only just given formal statements to the effect of, we want to focus more on what we do, which is books. But choices like that one, uh, you know, it's really like the publisher to launch a series of classes, it's personal. So I think it was probably driven by Elizabeth or maybe Andy Hunter, who was Catapult's publisher for a while after uh, Elizabeth. And we had him on the show because he founded Lit Hub and Bookshop. And publishing is just filled with a lot of interesting personalities. So following the thread of this trend was very curious to me because I hadn't heard what had become of Elizabeth Koch. And now she's probably going to explode onto the scene like Brene Brown or Glennon Doyle with this perception box idea. It's going to be interesting to see. But for now, classes, uh, online classes. What do you think, Brooke? Is there is there a future to build and grow online classes? Um, even without the pandemic, they seem like a great thing. I was actually recently asked whether I'd advise a writer these days, a young writer, to get an MFA. And I said that there are so many ways to learn in the classroom and beyond that weren't available to me when I got my MFA. So I think you can kind of get your own MFA literally through online classes and other other ways. So I, I'd advise people to at least consider these more affordable and equally effective options. A hundred percent. I mean, I'm a proponent of online classes. I teach them. I'm super into them. Uh, and I just think for people who are 
teaching the classes. It's about doing it well and doing it consistently. And for the students, it's about finding the teachers that they most like and love them, you know, and and there will never be a total drop off in online classes. People are longing for in-person stuff, but I've been teaching online classes since 2012 and there's always been a strong appetite. So I think all that's happening now is the technology is better and the space is more saturated, Uh, but it's ever moving, you know, people exiting the space, people entering the space, and that's how these things go. And I, it reminds me actually of what we're doing, Grant. You know, I mean, people come and go on podcasting, on all kinds of spaces. So, you know, for the time being, we're in. <laughs> on <a> note, <laughs> we're still here. We've been here for five years and going strong. But we're thinking about this because people will sometimes ask us, you know, should I start a podcast? And it's also a saturated space. And yet you find your listeners, you find your students. So uh, for the foreseeable future, we will be here. Uh, we appreciate you all for listening, for recommending our show, and maybe even taking a an online class from one of us now and again. Uh, And we'll see you next week.